Hey church, welcome to an online worship service at Agora Bible Fellowship. This scripture is Isaiah 52, verse 10. It says this, The Lord has bared his holy arms before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. It's that last bit that caught my attention. Let me read it again. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. We are in a crazy season. I've never seen anything quite like it. And I don't know about you. I'm known to love a good debate. And it's like everybody's all, and I'm kind of, and then I read that scripture. We will not go out with haste. We will not go out with flight. We will be paced before and behind us by the Lord. The battle, whatever is going on, belongs to Jesus. We are called not to win. We are called to be faithful. We're going to sing two songs in a row about just that. Let us take a deep breath, put Jesus back in the center of our thoughts and the center of our adoration and our worship and worship him in power and in strength and in truth. Amen. That was a long intro. You still with me? Let's sing.
fortress you go before us nothing can stand against the power of our god you shine in the shadows you win every battle nothing can stand against the power of our god almighty fortress you go
Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to ABF Online. It is January still, and I just want to know how those New Year's resolutions are going. Huh? You've already caved, haven't you? You're not even doing it. So much for that diet, all that stuff. But you know what? You're at church today. Check the box. You are with us. We're so glad you're worshiping with us today. Again, you know we want to pray for you anytime, anywhere, any place, and you can do that by texting us at 97,000, 9700000, we'd love to pray for you. Now, there's a few things that are happening in the new year. Make sure you know that both men's and women's Bible studies are in full swing. And so you can get all that information on our website. A number of opportunities for women uh, coming up, as well as our regular men's Bible study, which is every Tuesday morning. And you can do that, access that through live or online. We have both options at the same time. And then uh, life groups. Some of you have found that, hey, I've been kind of isolated. I need to get back into a group. We have groups that meet online. We have groups that meet outside. 
If you would like to get into a life group, would you just contact me and we'll help you find the group that fits your schedule, your needs, and your comfort level. And then, of course, if there's anything that we can do here at ABF, we're so glad that you're with us. And even now, as Pastor Scott comes to open God's word, we pray that it would make a a major difference in your life as you listen to God's word and apply it today. Have a great rest of your week. Looking forward to seeing you again soon. Well, greetings, church, and uh, thank you, John, and the worship team for leading us thus far. It's always so good to be together in worship and uh, fun as we're even here in this little couch section having different people here. It's good to have Matt McCormick up here representing all uh, real estate agents in the region. And uh, so anyway, uh, wondering how we're doing, how we're holding up in this study through the book of John. Today, we're actually at about the halfway point in our series, working through uh, the book of really the account of Jesus's, one of Jesus's closest friends, the account that John gives of his life and ministry. And it's interesting how John chose to uh, divide up the story of Jesus, because really the first half of the book captures or kind of summarizes the three years of ministry in Jesus's life. And then the second half of the book, which we're about to start entering into, captures the final week or so of Jesus's life. It's kind of honing in as it builds towards the climax of his of his death, resurrection, just all the amazing stuff that the whole Bible points towards. Uh, we're getting close to that, although uh, still quite a few chapters away. But just in form of recap, in the last couple chapters, we've seen some interesting things happen. In chapter 10, you may remember they pushed in the conversations with the religious leaders, they pushed Jesus to acknowledge his claims of deity. And when he finally does admit that he is God in the flesh, they raise stones to stone him. So that was a pretty big deal. Then in the following chapter, chapter 11, as things start to escalate, he also claims to be the one way to eternal life. Verse 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In that description, you see that the really the, the thing, the hinge pin for eternal life is belief. Someone that places their belief in him would never die. And then not only does he speak it, that's what I love in this account of John. Not only does he speak it, he then acts it out. He raises Lazarus, as we got to have fun with the story last week, raises Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating his power and victory over death and definitely making a case for his deity. Really, I would suggest that last week's story made it really easy for somebody to believe. We're about to see in today's text that it doesn't always work that way. In my opinion, where people should have humbly bent a knee and acknowledged him as God, instead some resist that. Really, it's fascinating over my years of ministry to look and observe people that suffer from unbelief. Really, it's a hard thing to explain because it's not always as you'd expect. Some people, you're like, oh man, they would definitely be convinced, and then they're not. And then fringe people that you think, I don't know if they're going to believe, and then they do. It's near impossible, though, as many of us have seen through experience, to change somebody's mind once they've dug in their heels in unbelief. 
My sister tells a story of a flight that she was on heading to Florida a number of years back. And in the conversation, she was talking to the guy next to her. He was pretty disappointed because of the forecast and the current conditions. They were flying through rain for a golf trip, an annual golf trip that he was heading to. And the entire weekend was forecasting more and more rain. So he was kind of a, in a bummed out mood, but still going regardless. She ended up saying that she had a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with him, basically through the entirety of the flight the end of the conversation, she could sense that there's still some reservations. She said, well, what do you think it would take for you to believe? Interesting to hear his response. His response, I may have shared this story before. I've been a pastor a long time. I, I lose all track of what stories I've told. But he, he uh, explained, you know what? I would believe if I end up getting a sunny weekend with perfect golf. She's like, well, all right, well, let me just pray for that. And she, she kinda, he kind of looked at her like, you're crazy. It was awesome, my sister said, to the entire weekend, even starting with an hour of getting off the plane to see the clouds subside and a perfectly sunny weekend against all the forecast. She's like, man, I, I wonder at some point on a golf range that he maybe bent a knee and acknowledged Jesus as Lord, but unfortunately, it doesn't always work like that. It doesn't always work like that. Not always does seeing mean believing. Sometimes there's unbelief when it doesn't make any sense at all. On well, today's text, I'm gonna look at, as you see as the title of this message, the nature of unbelief, the, the impact of unbelief, because it's something that so many are dealing with. Let me pray before we explore this text looking at the topic of unbelief. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together and continue to thank you for the resources that allow for us to gather online and even the technology that makes that possible during this difficult time. I continue to lift up our nation. I continue to pray for, for peace, for healing, to just invade our land. I continue to pray for protection for our church family and really more than just our church family that you would rid us of COVID. If we could be so bold as to ask that, we would love to see the other side of this, the impact that it could have on lives. God, we ask now that you be present and moving. We'd be able to free ourselves from distractions and really enter in this text and better understand unbelief on the other side of this. We invite that now in Jesus' strong name. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're in chapter 11. The, we got to cover the more known part of it last week. Now we're getting into the maybe a little bit less known part of it, the second half of the chapter, starting in verse 45. And I've titled this section, Unbelief Sabotages Our Propensity for Joy. Take a look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, and when it's saying therefore, after they'd seen the uh, Lazarus raised from the dead, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I want to pause there just for a moment because my first observation is this, something that's definitely missing from this story. What's missing from this story, in my opinion, is where is the resurrection party? 
Seriously, like where is the resurrection party? Where is people, uh, like honestly, for in, in our family, we tried to make a big deal out of holidays, out of special events for our kids' birthdays for years and years. We've always hung streamers from the doors, let them pick their favorite meal, gifts, make a huge deal about it. My kids have gotten so bold as to call it birthday week now. I'm not sure really where that comes from, but we make a big deal. We have fun celebrating important events. I would suggest that they could learn a little bit from us in the, as it relates to this. When someone comes from a tomb, comes back to life, that's worth throwing a party, I would suggest. But instead of that, there's no streamers, no confetti, no ice cream cakes. It's strange. Instead, we're told that some folks headed to rat out Jesus to his known enemies. You're like, man, what's wrong with that? Like, that's, that, that's, that's kind of broken, it seems. How somebody can have that kind of experience and still have the degree of hardness of heart that they want to turn him in to people that are known to want to kill him. Kind of a sad glimpse at how unbelief often works. Really, it shows the extreme hardness of hearts and really the lack of joy that invades the life of unbelief, the lack of joy that invades the life of unbelief. I really often feel sorry for someone that doesn't have belief, that's never put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, never acknowledged a God, a creator. I I wonder what that joyless existence looks like, where they don't acknowledge the source of the miraculous. Think the person that looks across the, the ocean. I often see people kind of capturing pictures of sunsets around here, looking out, whether it's Zuma or one of the beaches in Ventura, looking out at that. I just wonder, the person without belief, who do they thank for that night sky? I wonder so often, what, what does somebody, when they look at a new life, at a new baby, when they see a newborn, and they don't give credit to God, they see it as a blob of, of tissue, rather than an image bearer of God, man, where is the joy in that? Or the person that stares up on a clear night at the beautiful starlit sky and doesn't have anyone to worship. You see, lack of belief has the potential to sabotage really any opportunity for joy in one's life when they see things through the lens of unbelief. Continue in the text, verse 47, other things we learn about unbelief. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We'll stop there. This is interesting to me. First off, in form of explanation, when it says council, it's actually talking about the Jewish governing body, which was called the Sanhedrin. So they have this emergency meeting, if you will, and we get to be a, a fly on the wall hearing what transpired here. I do wonder how some of those details eventually made its way back to John. But unlike the story of the blind man, if you remember in our study, They didn't, in this meeting, try to do any kind of an investigation. You notice they're not saying, well, let's check the parents. Let's check the details. This was an event that was beyond any kind of question at this stage. There was no need for investigation. There was no disputing what had transpired. 
the facts were crystal cleared and were crystal clear and undeniable. So you think about that when you think about you're like, man, what does it take to convince somebody? What does somebody have to experience? You think about the audience and the people that had seen this take place. Think about all of their senses were involved. They smelled it when they pulled back the tomb. He stinketh, if you, re you remember from last week. They got a chance then to hear it. The sound of Jesus telling Lazarus, commanding Lazarus to come out. And they saw it with their own eyes. This man wrapped that they've known has been dead. They just smelled him on the other side of it. And still, despite all of their senses being exposed to it, despite all of that, they're still not bending a knee. You notice in this council meeting, they acknowledge, they even acknowledge, they refer to the things that he's doing as signs. It's interesting because if you think about it, what does a sign do? A sign demonstrates a certain reality. What is it a sign of? What, is, what, is, what are his actions demonstrating? They're demonstrating, they're demonstrating exactly what Jesus had said in the previous section that he wanted them to see by his signs, by his actions, that he was in fact the son of God. He was in fact the son of God. So they couldn't deny that this had transpired. They couldn't deny that it was signs. And they even, if you see there in the text, couldn't deny that all of these signs we're starting to build up, build up, build up. And if they weren't careful, sooner than later, everyone will believe. To me, it's sad when you see how that works so often when you're like, do they never consider, hey, maybe this is accurate. Maybe his claims are in fact true, but they refuse to bend a knee. What the reality is and what you see here labeled for that section, unbelief, often has nothing to do with a lack of evidence. There was mountains of evidence. That wasn't the issue. There's other issues going on behind the scenes. Why then would they not believe? Even though there are signs, there's evidence, there's eyewitnesses, why then would they not believe? I would suggest that other places in scripture, we see some of the explanation. One of those places we've already looked at in, our, in the book of John, another one is found in 2 Corinthians. See if you can identify it as I read. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see what it is there? Spiritual blindness. The God of this age, the God of this age has blinded people. I think that's important for us to understand. We've talked about that before in other passage in, uh, passages in uh, uh, understanding even present day because sometimes it's so easy for our mindset to get frustrated with all the people that are doing all the stupid stuff in our world right now. You're like, what in the world is going on? But you see, when you start to see it through the lens of blindness, there's a little bit more compassion. You're like, oh man, they can't see. They, they literally can't see. You don't get mad at a blind person for not being able to see what you see. You don't get mad at them for running into walls, but instead it should move us to compassion. That's one of the things that was going on with this group of eyewitnesses. They were spiritually 
blind. It should propel or compel patience and compassion on our side. Another factor that we see in scripture, as I mentioned already in John, John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So number one reason, blindness. Number two reason, you see it earlier in the book of John. Men love their sin. They love the world that they've created, the world that they've imagined, the world that they've established, what they've put in place, and they're not interested in having that threatened. We see it there in the response of this council. Well, you see it there on full display. Look at what they say. Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What's their place? Their place he's referring to is their position, their abuse of power, their misuse of, of temple money, all, all of the things that they were so deep entrenched with. They're like, wait a second, we're at the top of the, the food chain, socially, politically, financially. They were on top and they were concerned that Romans, if they got word of any kind of an insurrection or rising popularity of Jesus, that they would step in and take away what they had. Basically, their self-centered existence was threatened. Think about that. So often, isn't that still present day? That's what people aren't willing to give up. The idea of me doing my own thing when I want to do it, the idea of accountability of a God is a threat. And so we resist as much as possible. The idea that, wait a second, I have to give an account to Almighty God at some point tells us, and you add to that, you have to give an account, and I know what I've been doing, it goes against his directives. You're like, wait a second, I would rather resist that and dig my heels in in unbelief. You think about it, we deny him. By denying him, we have to create all kinds of other illusions or belief systems to resist what is undeniable. Continue in verse 49, you see how this conversation plays out in the council. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who we'll get to know as the story progresses, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. As I mentioned already, they had a vested interest in keeping their system in place. And you think about it, if they're at the top of the food chain, who would the high priest be? The high priest would be at the top of the top of the food chain. So basically we're being introduced to that guy, the head guy, the head honcho, Caiaphas. I love his arrogance. It just exudes out of him. Look at what he says. It's funny if you breeze past that. He's referring to this entire council. And what does he say to them? You know nothing. In other words, you're a bunch of dummies. He's saying this to this group that he's supposed to be partnering with to come to conclusion, 
But basically as a calculated politician, he understands people are expendable if they're needed to protect my self-interest. That's a scary thought, right? That that's where politics lead somebody. People are expendable if they're needed to sustain or protect my self-interest. That's the conclusion. And really, if you think about it, this is the first thing that you can find in a long time in scripture where Pharisees and Sadducees could agree on anything. What do they agree on? The death of Jesus was worth it. That's scary, isn't it? They agreed on that. One thing that they could land on, the death of Jesus was worth it. Why did they convince themselves that it was worth it? You see it there in the text. They say, well, it's for the benefit of all the people. It's better that one person die than all the people. When you think about it, that's a, a, a crazy statement. He made it not realizing that he was making a statement that he was actually speaking a prophetic word. He's speaking a prophetic word when he says one man should die for the nation. In other words, he's presenting the gospel. That is the gospel message. One man bear, bore the, the weight of all men's sin so that we could be rescued. He didn't realize what he was saying there. I love when, when God uses people to do, think, do and say things that they're like, man, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was watching this little video clip uh, that was shared with me. And it was, uh, it was Chris Rock. And I don't normally associate Chris Rock, really, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to even mention it here in church. I don't normally associate Chris Rock as saying really anything good. But this little clip of like two minutes where he was giving marriage advice. One, I was shocked that it was clean. Two, he actually had good counsel. He was saying, listen, it's a team sport. He's saying, listen, it's, it's your one role is to serve each other. I'm like, wait, is this Chris Rock? Like what, what is going on there? I love when God uses a truth and it invades in the most unlikely of spaces. You think about this. If you think about it, this person, even though he's independent of God, God still got him in his hand. God still uses the, God's word says that he holds the heart of kings in his hands. For us that are maybe in this season in a degree of panic or in a degree of celebration, the reminder for us, God's still in control. He holds king's hearts in his hands. But if you think about it, this person that's operating without God, that's willing to go to this dark place of unbelief, it really takes you to some dark places if you think about it. He's all of a sudden willing to kill somebody to protect his sinful world or sinful existence willing to move to that degree. That person of unbelief, I would suggest, is actually a dangerous person. The person that doesn't believe. Think about it for a moment. When they think that there's nothing really to live for other than this existence, all of a sudden when they consider the, the, that, that a person is a glob or a, a group of tissues, that, that, that's dangerous. When this is all, when there's no accountability, when there's no answering to God at the end of all of this, I would suggest that that person is dangerous because they don't hold the value of human life. They, they, they don't have any kind of accountability or anyone that they'll one day answer to. They believe that all this world is for their own glory and their own happiness. That's a dangerous place. But even in the midst of that, God still presents the reality. And here's the interesting thing, the reality that one man would sacrifice for all. And it points out that it's not just all of 
Israel, but he's going to use it to gather everyone, all of his children scattered abroad. And guess who that includes? Us, us. That's good news. Here's the thing that we realized, though, that was the conclusion of that. From that day forward, they concluded they were going to kill him. That was it. The decision had been set. The one decision that Sadducees and Pharisees could finally agree on was that they were going to murder God in the flesh. It's interesting when you think about this in hindsight, one of the things that they claimed they were trying to do was to protect the nation of Israel. I do find some degree of irony that ultimately that Israel, the city of Jerusalem and their beloved temple was destroyed just about just under 70 years later in 70 AD. You think about that. That's a pretty intense thing. When we take things into our, our own hands, doesn't always work out real great. Another reminder about unbelief. Unbelief even invades religious circles. We're seeing that demonstrated already, but take a look in verse 54. It makes it to the common people. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. We'll pause there. First, you notice that somehow Jesus was aware of what the plans were. So therefore, it says Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly. So therefore is because knowing there's an intent to kill him. We don't know if someone told him or if this is just his uh, foreknowledge of what would transpire. But either way, he begins living in seclusion as he gets closer and closer as he's waiting for God's perfect timing. It was going to happen on man's timing. It was going to be on his father's perfect timetable. It's interesting, and what I wanted to point out here, it's interesting to me that all these people are gathering 50, I forget what the total count was. I think it's like 50,000 people coming for Passover. They're showing up with the intent to carve out time to remember. And one of the things that they did leading up to that, one of the things that they showed up with was they had to seek out a lamb that was perfect and without blemish so they could sacrifice that lamb and remember God's provision to them in Egypt. Kind of fascinating. At the same time that they maybe just finished seeking out the perfect lamb, they shift to asking questions. Where do we find the perfect lamb? I wonder if Jesus is going to show up to the Passover. Why do they say they wonder? Because they realize the tension that's there. They knew that he followed all of the commands. And this was one of the expectations of Jewish men in that time is that they would be there at Passover. So they're realizing the potential collision there. Will he actually show up even when there's the risk of death? To me, it's kind of sad thinking of them fulfilling all of these religious duties. It says that they came there to purify themselves. So they're going through all these motions, all of these, uh, they were typical church, good, like church goers. They're, they're working through all of that stuff. And at the same time, 
they're missing the object of their worship. And you know where I'm going with that message. You think about so often today, we can get so busy with all of the church expectations. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do that. And somehow in the middle of it, lose the object of our affection. The one that, the reason that we gather. So often unbelief can sneak in to even religious systems. We see it here in the text. But you see one of the main ways that you see what happened here with these people's unbelief. Unbelief is demonstrated by their unwillingness to stand up, to speak up for Jesus. I imagine a bunch of the people that had just seen Lazarus raised from the dead. A bunch of the people that had just seen the man that had been blind from birth, given sight. I bet you a bunch of them are in the crowd remaining silent just excited to see what's going to transpire next. I think about that, and this verse so often comes to me, Matthew 10, 33. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a pretty intense passage and reminder for us. This is now a pretty dire situation. Now, you see at the end of the passage there, That it's no longer, yes, that the religious leaders don't like Jesus and they're trying to catch him in his words. Now it's all out, vocally been set. They've been emboldened. Now, I mean, his his picture's on the post office uh, door. I mean, now they've decided, if you know anything about his whereabouts, let us know because we intend to arrest Jesus. But you notice that their unbelief keeps all of these people that had been exposed to so much of the miraculous, so many of the miraculous things that Jesus does remains silent. So really to me, it's sad. Unbelief invades even religious circles. All of these things are characteristics or are, are, are part of the nature of unbelief. It doesn't matter necessarily about facts or details. It so often just has to do with heart stuff. But here's the awesome thing. And I wanna end with this last thought just as we wrap up. And this is maybe for the star pupil student to be able to answer this question. I have it there in your notes. The alternative to unbelief is, all right, help me with this. The alternative to unbelief is, hey, so that, that was pretty, that was, you're waiting for something trickier, right? The, the alternative to unbelief is belief. And here's the awesome thing that we learn about belief through these interactions with Jesus Do you remember when Jesus was interacting with Martha just before he raised Lazarus from the dead? He said to her something that should stick. It says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you see the partnership there? If you believe, then your eyes are going to be opened to the glory of God all around you. You see, belief leads to seeing even more of his glory. And the more you believe, the more you begin to see his, his, his hand at work at everything. Man, isn't that awesome? That's one of the gifts that we have as believers. He's given us the lens to see his glory all around us. And it can take lots of different forms. You can see his glory in the form of a paycheck. Maybe during this season, that's a, one of the ways that you've seen his provision and care for you. You can see his, his glory in your teenager's silly laugh. 
Just the other day, I uh, came home and, and found my Adrian and the three kids. They're all kind of laid out. We've got a sectional couch and they're all kind of laughing. They're all kind of intertangled under blankets in our house. We keep it probably too cold. My wife complains about that. But uh, they're, they're all tangled out. They're snuggling. They're watching whatever dumb TV show. And they're just laughing, having a good time. And there's that, that moment where I just kind of looked over and I was like, man, thank you, God. I see your, your glory even in these moments. You see, our life has so many opportunities. I mean, it could be your, your dog's sloppy wet kiss when he greets you at the end of the day. It could be the nemesis of yours that finally said sorry. It could be the coworker that, I don't know, you, you fill it in. That's one of the gifts of belief is starting to see his glory everywhere. And that changes everything. That changes the lens of our current circumstances. When you're not bound by the heaviness and weight of politics, man, turn that garbage off. When you're not, when you're not putting your hope in, in human kings, when you've let go of all of that stuff and all of a sudden you're saying, I'm just looking for God's glory. I'm starting my day, I'm spending my day and I'm celebrating it every place that I can find it. That's my hope for us as a church. And I think that's the better alternative to unbelief. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and this passage. So we learn a little bit about the hopelessness of unbelief. And I'll tell you what, it should move us a little bit to feeling just sorry for people that don't have us, ha have you, that don't uh, embrace the, 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 the glory of God that's evident in so many different ways around us. My prayer is that one, it compels us to share that with people. And two, it brings us, maybe some of us during this stretch out of the dumps, kind of slipped into a, just a stinking thinking and kind of a funky dark place. Man, if you could bring us out with your glory, where we start to see it through the lens of belief. Belief isn't a one-time event at salvation. It's something that's intended to, to grow in our life. We grow in our belief and that belief exposes your glory. My, that's my prayer for us as, a, as individuals, collectively as a church, and even more collectively as Big C Church, my prayer overall. Thank you, God, for this time together in your word. We praise you for that now in song. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. 
salvation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Thank you so much, worship team. So good to worship together and to celebrate our one true hope. I'll tell you what, if there's anything I've learned from studying unbelief, it tells me that the alternative is much better. I pray you get to live in that this week and enjoy that. God bless you. Have an amazing day.